So John 20, um, second Sunday of Easter, we begin on verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples, and this is the first Easter, by the way, so there's, we have a week jump in this, in this text. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, for fear of death, by the way, uh, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said that, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive their sins, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them this was, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, the disciples his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus, Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. What a strange, strange week it must have been between those two Sundays. You, you have to wonder what all went on. Uh, the disciples must have, did, did they pinch each other? Did they pinch themselves? Did they say, you were there. Tell me this all, all it wasn't a dream. It, it really happened. He, 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 there must have been big swatches of times where they just sat and said, How, how do we think of it? You might say, well, no. I mean, they'd seen the same with Lazarus. They saw Lazarus. They knew Lazarus was dead. They saw him alive. Jairus' daughter. They, they saw dead people alive again. But this was different. Those were revived into their, from, from death into their mortal bodies. They were revived to die again. A resurrection. Uh, the first fruits of the new creation. Jesus' body was a whole new thing. It wasn't just a body that remained the same as it always had. He looked different. Sometimes people recognized him, sometimes, sometimes people didn't. He passed through walls. This was altogether a brand new thing. And they were astonished. What, what, you can imagine the one thing we know that they did 
was that they rushed on Thomas, who hadn't been there, and said, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. And Thomas was nobody's fool. Thomas might well have had the intellectual chops of all the disciples. And he said, who do you think you're dealing with here? You know, I, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I, I saw him dead. I'm having none of it. Unless I put my fingers in the holes, unless I put my hand in the side, I will not believe. I will not believe you, my excited, foolish brothers who have fallen for this lion. I'm not going to do it. I'm too smart. Thomas's reaction was one of the most familiar and often preached on in the scriptures. Them all bubbling with, you can picture it, can't you? Them all bubbling with excitement and enthusiasm and him saying, no, 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 no. Go have a good night. What, what, what have you been drinking? You know, that, that, was, that was the kind of reaction. Thomas knew too much. He was too smart. Um, he was nobody's fool. And that's, when you have intelligence, and maybe even lofty intelligence, it's, it's a good thing, of course, but it comes with some liabilities, doesn't it? it it's... Um, there's a certain haughtiness about it. There's a certain arrogance about highly intelligent, highly educated people. That's one of the liabilities of it. We give thanks that there are people who are highly educated and real smart, and we're, we're glad for them. But there's, there's some liability with it. it there's, there's a downside. And it's so wonderfully ironic that Thomas, this, this bright, knew-everything-that-he-needed-to-know guy, it was brought down and made to look foolish in the very context of the thing that he was most proud. He was not going to fall for something like that. Not this Thomas. He made two mistakes. The first big one is that he failed to trust his brothers. Now, he, what possible reason did he have for thinking that they would come and blurt out such a ridiculous thing. Why would they possibly lie to him? What possible reason could they have? Why, what motive would they have for saying something so foolish? Is that it's a brand new day. The past is gone, the new has come. It's, the Lord is risen. What, what possible motive would they have for saying something like that? And he mistrusted them. He disbelieved them. He didn't just doubt. He disbelieved. He refused to believe. Unless, we're, unless we be too hard on Thomas, we have to understand, of course, that we recognize Thomas and we recognize him in ourselves. Uh, how would we act, react, if someone came up to us with news that was just simply too good? Some news that was so far outside our normal pale of experience, so over the top, way, way out there, that it just, yeah. How would we, even if that news was brought to us by 
by chums and mates and friends and, and, and maybe even, well, the closest people to us, people that Thomas had been living with for three years. Would we not also be skeptics? Would we not, especially if the news was so out there, so way outside of anything that we had as a part of our experience? How would you receive such news? Dear friends, it's one of the biggest challenges we have as Christians. To live successfully as Christians, we have to believe in things that other people tell us that are way outside of ordinary experience. We have to believe them are the people closest to us, our fellow church people, the pastors, teachers, bright people, whoever, the people who have news, the very best possible news that have ever passed human lips, that the thing that we fear the most, the things that we fear the most, sin and death and hell, have been overcome in this one, for those who believe. You cannot come up with better news, dear friends. And it falls on us who would desire, who desire to be successful, to live successfully as Christians, to believe something preposterous. That the biggest things, the biggest fears, simply are not major players anymore. Or they have their, their day, they, we, we, we work as hard as we can to stay fit and healthy. We, we're quick to uh, say, yes, yes, we'll go through the therapy if we get bad news from the doctor. We're, we, we don't, no one wants to die if, if they're in decent health anyway. Uh, they are young. They, but, but it's not the major player at the table anymore because we have believed preposterously good news. News so far outside the realm of usual practice and experience that we go through in a day-to-day -day life that the major players at the table are altogether different. Death is a bit part. It has a small part at its place and we push it off as long as we can, but it's not it's not the major player any longer. And if we're to live as, as Christians, we are called upon to believe without seeing with our own eyes that astonishingly good news. You might say it takes, well, and you recognize it takes a lot of trust to do that. It takes a high level of trust in the words of other people. Maybe some of us have been burned by trusting other people. Maybe even some of us have been burned by trusting other people that are closest to us. Maybe some of us have been trusted by people, especially by people who are closest to us. Maybe by fellow church people, by preachers, teachers the like of that. But that's who came running up to Thomas with this amazing good news and saying, we have seen something that is, we know 
incredible, but you must believe us. And his reaction was something that we are familiar with. He said, I won't do it. How could, though, you expect them to do it? What we're asking for in belief is that the person deny the self-evident things. C.S. Lewis put it this way, in asking someone to believe, you must ask them to do something contrary to what the normal expectation is. And he gives an example of a dog with its foot caught in a trap. He says, in order for you to help that dog get its foot out of the trap, you must help that dog trust you that pushing, doing the, the counterintuitive thing, the, the, the thing that the dog wants to do is pull and pull and pull and, and make it worse, isn't it? He says, if you want to help that dog get its foot out of the trap, you have to help it believe that doing the counterintuitive thing, pushing the foot further into the trap, is the thing, the key, to releasing the trap so that the foot can be free. If, if a child gets a foot fish hook caught in his or her finger, part of the, the challenge of a parent who wants to help relieve that pain is to help that child believe that hurting the finger a whole lot more by shoving the hook through the rest of the way is the key to helping it stop hurting altogether. It's, it's counterintuitive, teaching a child how to swim. It's a very difficult thing to trust that this water that seems so deadly and seems so powerful and is just going to swallow you right down, if you can learn to work with it rather than fight it, is the key to learning how to float, to learning how to swim, to learning how to dive, to learning how to have actual fun in the water. You ask people to go against what their normal experience tells them. We ask them to accept impossibilities. Things like a new creation, a resurrection. We ask them to believe our words. Sometimes uh, people don't, and that's the tragedy today of the church. A whole, one of the most powerful weapons of atheists today is to make those who believe look like, or try to make us look like fools. People who have denied every reasonable thing, every, I mean, a virgin birth, <laughs> who do you think you're talking to anyway? Resurrection. I, I've seen dead bodies. I, I know what happens to dead bodies. Don't try and tell me that. That's one of the things that the atheists, one of their most powerful tools is to make those of us who believe look like in the eyes of the world, of people who trust their senses, who trust that this is, this is hard and that this is a different kind of experience. To fly in the face of what we know to be right. Um, Lenin um, of, the, of the early 1917 Russia, the leader of the Russian Revolution, thought that those who believed in God were worse 
than fools. He said, every person who occupies him or herself with the construction of a god or merely even agrees to it prostitutes himself in the worst way. Anyone who believes in God is not simply in error, he is mentally deranged. If you've read the, um, the book, uh, and I don't advise you to do it because it's, uh, the man's a smart man, and, and he can, if you aren't really sharp with your arguing chops, you don't want to read Hitchens' book, uh, The God Delusion. But, but that's what his, the whole point is to make those of us who believe look like fools. Thomas should have believed this news that was too good to be true. We call him Doubting Thomas, but he really wasn't. The actual original language there is disbelieving Thomas. Thomas didn't just doubt. Thomas disbelieved. He said, until I have my experience validated, until I have it acknowledged that my experience and this this pale of things that happens to me and the things that my eyes see and that I my fingers touch, unless I have it proved to me and shown to me that that's the only thing that exists, and how foolish is that? That's what made Thomas look so foolish, that he insisted that my stuff, my experience, is the only thing that's true, the only thing that I will accept. Unless that happens, the stuff that's within here, with my eyes, my fingers, I will disbelieve. When Jesus came and stood in their midst with this somehow the same, he had scars, and yet somehow very different. He appeared. He he was changed. He was the first fruits of the new creation. When he came... That next week, the second Sunday of Easter, and stood in their midst, he said, peace, be with you. And then he turned to Thomas, and we have the sense that he came especially for Thomas, don't we? And he said, Thomas, here. Good enough? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 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 go ahead. You You can do that. And Thomas looked the fool but looked oh so wonderfully smart when he fell on his knees and probably couldn't even get the words out straight. And he said the most complete and fullest confession of faith that there ever has been. He says about Jesus, my Lord, which basically meant Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, the supreme one about whom my faith has been teaching all of my life. My Lord and my God, you are the one who spoke all things into being, and you are mine. You are my personal Lord and God. And unbelief very quickly becomes belief. Thomas blurts out, this wonderful confession. What does that mean then for us? Do we first have to see and touch and taste? Do we have to experience it inside of our own very limited little pale of experience? 
Is that what we insist on? Maybe, maybe you or someone you know, someone you pray for, someone you worry about, maybe you are struggling with belief. You say, you know, this is, you know, I, I've been told this all my life, and it's, I wasn't born yesterday. I know a few things. I know that when you pull the string, something happens over there, but asking me to believe that uh, something outside of my pale of experience is actually true and that I should put my trust in and that, and that the, the back of the things I fear the most has been broken, I'm too smart. I won't do it. You're in company. You have company if you have that belief. Um, lots of people in, in John chapter 12, verse 37, Jesus says, even after he had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, he had raised Lazarus. This is after Lazarus. He had, he had healed the man born blind in the Gospel of John. He said, even after he had done these things in their presence, they did not believe. Chapter 6, verse 36, he says, but as I told you, you have seen me. Still, you don't believe. No, friends, seeing is not believing. You don't need to have a, tr uh, a miracle done before your eyes before you'll believe. At the conclusion of the book, uh, the atheist philosopher Voltaire said, if a miracle incurred in the marketplace of Paris and in the presence of 2,000 people, I would rather disbelieve my own eyes, then believe the testimony of the 2,000. The point is that belief is a gift. It comes from God. And I guess I, would, I will ask you, is God saying, stop disbelieving? Believe. By the power of his Holy Spirit, God creates an ear in our hearts and a willingness in these proud minds of ours to say, oh, my Lord and my God. That's what happened with Thomas, and, and I think he was pretty smart. He did the, the wise thing. We don't pity ourselves because we don't see miracles happening every day. We have reliable testimony from history, from family, from preachers, teachers, friends, the Christian community. We have reliable word of mouth testimony that these things are true.